The word of the Lord from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Please be seated. Let's look, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken to us by your word and by your spirit. We pray that as we look into the scriptures today, you would open our eyes to see, you would open our hearts to understand and you would work in us, Father, to give us the will to put into practice that which you speak. That, Father, we would not be forgetful hearers who deceive ourselves, but faithful doers of your word to your honor and glory and praise through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So according to Exodus chapter 12, we will eventually get back to Romans, but we're going to start in Exodus, so it may take us a little while. But in Exodus chapter 12, according to that chapter, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And then in Exodus 19, seven chapters later, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. So there were roughly just three months between the first Passover, which was observed in Egypt when God sent the destroying angel to claim the lives of the firstborn of Egypt or Israel, anyone who did not apply the blood to the door, Three months later, the people have arrived at the foot of Sinai, and during those three months, God has led them through the Red Sea by a pillar of cloud and fire. God has begun to feed them every single day with manna, known elsewhere in Scripture as the bread of heaven. And God has supplied them already with water from the rock at Mount Horeb, proving by this that his presence was indeed among his people. Very specifically so, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, as a footnote, and this is just free information, but if you've ever heard anyone argue for some sort of radical discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant, Someone who does that needs to address the reality that Paul, writing to a Gentile church and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of the people of Israel as their fathers, as our fathers. 
even though we are not of a Jewish ethnicity, I'm sure most of us anyway, even though we were not alive in the day when the Old Covenant was ratified at the foot of Mount Sinai, Paul refers to those people who were there as our fathers, establishing exactly the opposite and doing so, as I said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there is not radical discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New, as if God was dealing with his people Israel under the Old Covenant in a certain way, and then he just stopped when Christ came and established something completely different. The New Covenant is anchored firmly in the Old, and we understand the Old in light of the New, we understand the New as we look to the old for comparisons, there's not a radical discontinuity there. In, far, in fact, there is what some might describe as radical at the root, which is what radical means, by the way. If you didn't know that, there's your vocabulary word for the day, radical, from the same Latin root as radish. And it doesn't mean extreme or over the top or anything like that. Revolutionary radical means root level. And at that root level, there is continuity between the covenants. This is all the more apparent as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the rock that followed them. And in case there was any doubt, that rock was Christ the apostle tells us. So as God led his people through the wilderness up to Sinai and for 40 years after that, they were led and fed by God and the rock that followed them, according to the apostle Paul, was Christ, the same Christ whom we're here to worship, whom we serve. This is the description that Paul gives of the presence of God with Israel in the wilderness. Now there's, there's far more to come after Sinai, where they are for a little while, then there's 40 more years. Exodus is followed by Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the point I want to make, in spite of that little digression, is that what happened on Mount Sinai and at the bottom of Mount Sinai happened very, very early in the history of Israel as a nation who had been brought up out of Egypt. Very little time had passed at this point. Now in chapter 20, as we know, God spoke to all the people in an audible voice, giving the Ten Commandments. And even though he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, because they are our fathers, we can hear that same word speaking to us. He is the Lord our God who has delivered us, not literally from geographic Egypt, but from the Egypt of our sin and the darkness of our hearts. He spoke those words audibly to them before ever they received those tablets of stone. I've gone over this before, I know, but I'm fighting against the popular media who has this happen in a different sort of order that doesn't make sense. But after God had spoken to them, verse 21 of chapter 20 says, the people stood far off because they were afraid. They had told Moses, you go, you talk to God, you come back and tell us what he said, but we don't want God speaking directly to us because we think if we hear his voice again, we might die. 
And so God had spoken audibly, but then in verse 21, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, remember, as I said, at this point, they don't have the stone tablets, but they do have the Ten Commandments. God had given the Ten Commandments audibly to the entire nation. So even though Moses is going to be up and down the mountain a couple of times here, the people know that they are to have no other gods before the Lord their God. They know that they're not to make idols in the shape of, randomly, of course, a golden calf. At the end of chapter 24, Moses will go up and he will receive those tablets, but before he does, chapter 24, verse 3, Moses came and he told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then in verse 4, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord for them. That'll be described later as the book of the covenant. And he arose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do for the second time. But all of that is to get us to verse 8. And Moses took the blood, the blood that he had collected in the basins, and he threw it on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. A little bit later in the service, you're going to hear very, very similar language. The blood of the covenant. When we draw near to the Lord's table, we're going to hear that spoken, and drawing near to the table of the Lord is something that the elders of Israel did immediately following this covenant inauguration. And this is important because, as the writer of the Hebrews pointed out, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus the writer of the Hebrews went on, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, rites like what we've seen in Exodus, where bulls were slain, slain and the blood was collected, and the people were sprinkled with the blood to set them apart as holy to the Lord. But the heavenly things had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, <coughs> which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He needed to do this for all have sinned, as we've seen so often in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
Now we've been working through verse 25, that last verse there, a little bit backwards. We've talked about faith first. We're talking about blood today. But D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this verse, we are looking here at one of the most important verses in the whole of Scripture. There's no doubt about that. Somebody has described this as the Acropolis of the Bible and of the Christian faith. We therefore cannot examine it too closely or too carefully. And anyone who's been part of the Knowing God Bible study on Wednesday mornings will recognize that the very title for the sermon this morning is borrowed from J.I. Packer, who's speaking of this verse, but also of the concept of propitiation by the blood of Christ, said these things are the heart of the gospel. And indeed they are. See, sometimes, and we just did this last Lord's Day, we talk about the means by which we received salvation. Summarized as those things are for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Very good. That's important. It's important that we understand that salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's important that we understand that there is nothing we can do to merit or to effect salvation in our lives. It's the work of God from first to last. It's important to understand that this grace, this salvation is received in, by faith and by nothing else. Now we know it's a faith that works. The faith that we receive that brings salvation is a faith that results in obedience to God for we are his workmanship. Paul went on to say in Ephesians 2 verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The apostle James also made the point, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But faith is not a work. Faith is not even a decision that we have to come to by our own volition. John wrote in his gospel that those who receive Christ are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Of course, that's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this salvation by grace through faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But this is the means by which the righteousness of God is bestowed upon us. This week, we're not talking about the means anymore. We did that last week. This week, we're talking about the basis on which a just God can justify the ungodly. As we come to understand that, we realize it's, it's still by grace. It's always by grace, but it's not a cheap grace, as if God were to just say, you know what, you're my children, I love you. I'll just overlook everything that you've done. He wouldn't say that any more than he would say, you know what, you've committed a lot of sins, you're going to have to work hard to try to pay that off yourself. Not at all. It is by grace, but not by cheap grace. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Now more specifically, in 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we're told you were ransomed, you were redeemed, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold. I don't want to add to God's word, but Peter could just as easily have said, not with perishable things like your own good works, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What I'm about to do is not something that many people will do these days. It's not popular in many branches of the church. But here, Peter, like Paul in Romans, insists that we were ransomed, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That is the price that was paid for us and our salvation, the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is not an isolated text. This is an idea that comes out of the Old Testament and is found all through the New Testament. In Acts, when Paul was giving a last exhortation to the elders at Ephesus, he said, therefore take heed to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul's being very clear here. He's not saying he purchased it in some vague ethereal sort of way. He purchased the church. He purchased us with his blood. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. If you think about the implications of that, that means that if his blood had not been shed, we would not be justified. But since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12, Christ entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. What I want us to understand is this is not a metaphor. When the Bible speaks of the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament, it's talking about animals who were literally sacrificed, blood that was literally shed. And when we come over to the New Testament and those old covenant sacrifices have been abrogated because Christ has offered himself once and for all in the heavenly place, it's not a metaphor. It's not saying that Christ's willingness to sacrifice himself has done away with those old covenant sacrifices. It's true. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed, as we will say here at the table in just a few minutes, for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. If his blood had not been shed, we would not have eternal redemption. If his blood had not been shed, we would not be justified before God. And this is just a sampling of these texts. I could go on. But why is this important at all? Why is it important that we understand and believe that the precious blood of Christ was the price that was paid for us and for our salvation? Well, again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, listen to verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood 
of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What the writer of the Hebrews is saying is that our confidence in drawing near to God has to be based on the blood of Jesus. Our confidence even to pray, to draw near to the throne of grace and bring our petitions before the Lord has to be based on the blood of Jesus. Our confidence to come here week by week and to worship the Lord, drawing near to him in songs of praise and in offering our petitions before him, drawing near to him at this table of the Lord with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, all of this has to be based on the blood of Jesus. Let me be clear, if our confidence is based on anything else, if our confidence is based on us thinking that we're pretty good people. If we think that we can draw near because we come from a good Christian family, if we think that we can draw near because once when we were children we attended a five-day club and we prayed a little prayer and we asked Jesus into our heart, if we think that we can draw near because we have followed certain rituals and by them have been received into the visible church, if our confidence comes from anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, then salvation is no longer by sheer grace. It's just sheer presumption. Sometimes when I'm talking about this subject, I, my mind goes back a lot of years now to the Evangelism Explosion Program, where one of the things that we were taught to do in attempting to share the gospel with people was to ask this question, if you were to die right now and stand before God and God was to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you respond? Now that's not gonna happen. God knows those who are his. There's not a pop quiz at the pearly gates. Peter's not you know, um, checking the list to make sure that everyone who arrives there could get in, so don't think like that. But the question is not a bad question. And the reason I come back to it is because people tend to answer it in a couple of different ways. One sort of person will answer that question, if God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? They'll answer it because I. Because I've done my best through the days of my life to keep the Ten Commandments and to be a good person. Maybe we don't even have the Ten Commandments in there. I've just tried my best to be a good person because I've been a church member all my life, because I attended faithfully almost every single week, because I did this, because I did that. And any answer to that question that begins with those two words, because I, is a wrong answer. If God were to ask that question, and he won't, but if he were, the right answer begins with because Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ shed his blood for me. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin. Because Jesus Christ has sent forth the Holy Spirit. 
and has called me by his grace and has made me his own because Jesus Christ stood in my place and suffered the wrath of God on the cross and all through his life to pay that penalty. Our confidence has to be based on nothing but the blood of Jesus. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, therefore, remember, and it's worth pointing out here, the conjunction dio is a word usually denoting the fact that the inference is self-evident. So what Paul is saying, therefore, because of something else, remember, and these verses follow right after those verses that I mentioned a little bit earlier in the service, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and so on. Therefore, for this reason, because of this, because you have been saved by grace through faith, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time se separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, what amazing phrase that is. Looked at it a couple of times already. That's who you were. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. But again, how? How have we been brought near? We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, you were outsiders. You were not included in the covenants of promise. You were not even among those who were set apart long ago by the blood of the old covenant, which Moses sprinkled on the people of God at Sinai. But now, in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What incredible truth for us to lay hold of. It's not about us. It's not about our good works or our good attitude or anything to do with us. It is the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus himself spoke of this on the night he was betrayed. He had gathered with his disciples and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. We forget sometimes what it is that this symbolizes, what it is that this means if we come to this table in faith and let the Holy Spirit nurture our faith for eternal life. This is my blood of the covenant, Jesus said, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink, all of you. For by my blood, by the blood of the covenant, your sins are being forgiven and you are being brought near. And this is the understanding, this is the faith, this is the confidence that we have to bring to this table this morning. If we do not have that faith, if we do not have that confidence, then this is not yet a place where we belong. But we come with that confidence 
And this is what's behind the rhetorical question that's asked by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. He wrote, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia? Many of you know what that word symbolizes. A koinonia, a fellowship, a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ. When we come and we take that little cup of juice or wine, whatever it may be, and we drink that cup, we are communing not merely with one another, but with Christ himself. It is a participation, a communion in his blood. Because the answer that Paul assumes is certainly yes. Yes, it is, absolutely. When we partake of the cup here at the table of the Lord, we are in communion with the blood of Christ, the very blood that gives us confidence to draw near because it is the blood by which we have been brought all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in that state, we dare not approach this table. And we dare not approach this table with any confidence in ourselves. Rather, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Through whom? Christ Jesus, in other words. The wrath of God was satisfied on behalf of all those who are brought to him through true faith. And this is the heart of the gospel. What can wash away our sin? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, as we come in just a few minutes to this table, as we come to this place where you commune with us through the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this place where you confirm your covenant of grace in us and make it clear that we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death. Lord, we pray that you would help us to come this morning with Confidence in nothing else, but confidence and faith that comes because Jesus Christ, our Savior, shed his blood, his precious blood like that of a lamb without spot or blemish for us and for our salvation. Draw us near once again, we pray, by the blood of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.